I'm Mark Middleton, along with Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Boulder, the show that proves that it's never too late and it's never too tough to find and then live your passion. And we think you'll be glad you tuned in today because we've got an amazing lineup of guests. Oh, incredible people for you today. One of the world's best-selling recording artists of all time, a singer-songwriter who's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and he sold more than 128 million albums and counting. Wow. Also, a former NFL star, a player in his courageous battle to keep his leg, plus the woman who was shot while sitting in her car, left a quadriplegic, but still became a professional artist. And how do we top that? Maybe with one of the most important healthcare pioneers ever, a man responsible for saving countless lives, and the woman who reinvented herself post-retirement, discovering and now sharing her inspirational passion with the world. Are you ready to start growing bolder? Everyone on the planet recognizes that 1969 hit Sweet Caroline. You still hear it as much today. And our next guest, one of the world's best-selling artists of all time, sold more than 128 million albums. He's a Grammy Award winner, a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and honored by the Kennedy Center for his lifetime of contributions to our culture. Yeah, he is an icon. His career has spanned more than five decades, and now at the age of 73, he remains one of the world's top drawing live performers and he's just released his first collection of original songs in six years it's called melody road he is of course the one and only neil diamond hey neil how are you hi mark i'm i'm fine and i'm so happy to be talking to you and bill today well thank you so much and apologies right up front neil for mentioning uh your age because i'm guessing it was something nobody ever did until you turned 70 but here at growing boulder we're all about spreading the powerful message that it's possible to actually get better become happier as we get older and you sir appear to be exhibit a is it as great to be you today as it seems to be I think it's better than ever. Uh, all the pieces have fallen into place. Uh, I, I've, I'm with a wonderful woman, um, and my wife uh, is makes all the difference in in my life. She's she's the whole piece of the puzzle that was missing. I had everything else, and now that I have her, I have everything. Um, and my age doesn't matter. Uh, so there you go. I, I've I've found what I what I need. And you know, Neil, I'm guessing that filters into every aspect of your life. I mean, Melody Road, it's it's an album of love songs. Your 32nd album, which is incredible enough to say, but you still sound fresh. You're not repeating yourself. How does that happen after all these years? Well, you know, it takes a little work uh to to avoid repeating yourself, but I do uh, I do know that music is very broad and very deep, and uh, there's, there are plenty of new ideas and uh, new ways to express yourself musically. Uh, so I, I never doubt that there's something out there that I can find and work and create something fresh with. Uh, the Melody Road album is a, is a real good example. Uh, the songs are all different, and yet uh, there's a familiarity and a comfort to these songs that I feel, and uh, evidently the listeners have, have taken to it as well. And uh, what can I say? Uh, it's it's it, there are plenty of opportunities out there, and, and the age thing uh, it, it really it turns out to be irrelevant. It's what's what's going on in my mind really that's that's more important. Neil, a perfect segue to just a little bit of this album. Folks, we want to give you a taste of it. Uh, Neil has said that he, he wrote this and completed the album Under the Spell of Love after being married in 2012. Let's listen to just a bit from one of the tracks on Melody Road called The Art of Love. You made me see I'd have to be a brand new man 
he lives in me. Neil, you still caught it. How does that happen? You know, so many other performers, they'll lose range or lose power in their voice. You can't tell the difference between the Neil Diamond of 2014 and the Neil Diamond of 1970. Well, thank you. And I don't know how that happens. Uh, If there is a gift involved in this whole thing, I think that's the gift. Uh, My voice is strong and uh, my passion for the music is as it always was. It's, it's very powerful, and uh, those two things make for for what I'm doing and what I have done for the last 45 or 50 years. You know, Neil, you're not only a, a great singer and a great man. Apparently, you're also a mama's boy to, to some extent. Is it true that you still run your songs by Rose, your 96-year-old mother? I do, and I have played her my music since... I started. Uh, there weren't any. There weren't any other people who would listen. So, uh, uh, mom was there, and uh, she's pretty sophisticated these days, and she's got an opinion. And I like her to know that what she has to say is relevant and important. So I do play her my music. Uh, uh, I'll be heading back to Los Angeles. Uh, in another week or so, and I will bring the album with me, and I will play it for her, and I will have to sit there and take her criticism <laughs> and her suggestions, whether I use anything or whether they seep through my hard head, uh, is another story. But she she will know that her opinion still counts. That's so beautiful. That's awesome. And her, your mom at 96 years old. Hey, Neil, you know, we find on this program very often that people don't really start to live until they think they're going to die. And that happened to you in the 80s. Did that change your life? Well, uh, it certainly changed my life. It, uh, uh, I had a, uh, a situation where I had a tumor in my spinal cord. Uh, it didn't look... It didn't look good. I was starting to get paralyzed and lose the use of of the right side of my body. And uh, I went through it and got through it, uh, recovered from it, and moved on with my life. But I had a, a new respect for time and for for what I was doing, for the work that I was doing. Uh, and uh, it, it did change my life in that regard. Uh, it, it, it put things into perspective, and it, it gave me the chance, I felt, to start again and do it right. So uh, in a weird way, uh, I'm grateful for that. Uh, I survived it and uh, uh, kept writing, kept performing, and... Uh, it's 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 something from the distant past now, but it's still way in the back of my head, and it affects pretty much everything I do. Folks, this is Neil Diamond, who grew up basically uh, on the streets of Brooklyn. And, and Neil, you have performed all over the world in, in huge venues. Uh, and it was only recently that you performed your first concert ever in your hometown of Brooklyn. Really wasn't your typical venue, was it? Tell us just a little about that. Yeah, well, I went back to my high school, uh, Erasmus Hall High School in in Brooklyn, and uh, it was uh, quite an experience because the, the building itself, which is it's, it was the second oldest public high school in the country, so it's somewhere in the 1600s that school was originally built, and uh, it's it looks like a fortress and uh, more like a college campus. Uh, and going back there, I spent two years at Erasmus before I moved on to Abe Lincoln High School in Brooklyn. But I, I remembered the rooms. I remembered the floors. I remembered the structure. I, I, I did a little concert for the kids uh, and some contest winners and, uh, and people at school, the teachers, uh, in the chapel that I sang in in the choir when I was... 15 and 16 years old it all brought back great memories uh, the streets around the school 
uh, the streets that I walked, the places that I worked, uh, it, it all came back to me, and it was a, a wonderful, wonderful experience. Well, folks, you have to check out his new album, Melody Road. You can find it just about anywhere. And if you want to see him on tour, because he still puts on an incredible show, check out his website, neildiamond.com. We want to leave you with what Billboard magazine said about his new album. Quote, at a time when some of his contemporaries are embarrassing themselves, he's confident in his legend without resting on his laurels, challenging himself without garishly attempting to be contemporary, and playing to his strengths with a self-deprecating wink we should all age so gracefully folks check out melody road from the great neil diamond now coming to america on the boats and on the planes they're coming to america never looking back again they're coming to america Home. the former nfl star and his impossible dream he wants to run again. That's next on Growing Boulder. In the eye of the storm. In the eye of the storm. Support for Growing Boulder provided by our partners at Florida Blue Medicare, providing the guidance you need to stay informed and stay connected through COVID-19. Now offering tips, ideas, and critical resources at growingbolder.com slash COVID. Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit growingbolder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Boulder. And it's time now for our surviving and thriving segment. With the right kind of care and support and the right attitude, it's possible to not only survive life's greatest challenges, but to thrive in the aftermath. Yeah, and talk about a major challenge, Bill. What Reggie Williams has been through since he retired from the NFL has tested him in every way imaginable. He now lives in pain, but with purpose and passion. As Reggie Williams stretches inside his Orlando loft, he's 25 years removed from one of the greatest defensive careers in Cincinnati Bengals history. Williams has been a quiet warrior his entire life, but never more so than now as he battles to save his right leg from amputation. 24 surgeries and multiple life-threatening infections have left Reggie's knee disfigured and his legs in constant pain. You know, I don't really like to go around and tell everyone I'm always in constant pain, but... But you are. I am in constant pain. But it's manageable because I'm in an environment of peace. Reggie surrounds himself with great literature, great music, and great art, including original paintings by many of his friends, including actor Billy D. Williams, Leroy Neiman, and the late Ernie Barnes, a former NFL player who became one of the world's most celebrated African-American artists. I met him my rookie year. I was so impressed with his genius of how Norman Lear uh, discovered him for the Good Times series, made him the artist behind J.J. and then being the official artist of the 84 Olympics. And, and then obviously his breakout artwork that graced uh, Marvin Gaye's album, Sugar Shack. So you get the chance to know the genius behind the paint stroke. And in that respect, while you're dealing with pain, you're also dealing with a great comfort and great beauty and, and great passion and great commitment to craft. And uh, so with music and literature and great memories and keeping the brain stimulated and stimulating friends and conversation, yeah, pain, you know, is a part of the fabric of life. It's 90 degrees inside Reggie's loft because that's what the temperature is outside. His air conditioning is never on. The cool air tightens his damaged muscles and joints, making it difficult to stretch, which he does every morning of every day. His extreme flexibility compensates for multiple alignment problems, the result of being born bow-legged and exacerbated by two dozen surgeries and infections that literally ate a good portion of his femur surgeries that left his right leg nearly three inches shorter than his left. 
It's a great conversation starter, unlike any other appendage of my body. So I've come to love this thing. 24 surgeries, decades of pain, infections, frustration. How many people, Reggie, have told you lose the leg? Everyone. Everyone. Everyone, including all of his doctors, have recommended amputation, which would end his pain, and with the use of modern prosthetics, give him back his mobility. But Reggie refuses to take what he views as the easy way out. Keeping his leg has become his all-consuming passion, his raison d'etre, a test of his will, and a reminder of his final promise to Ernie Barnes, who lost his leg and eventually his life to a rare blood disease. And he was bitter because he had something that could not be helped. And he was alone, and he was concerned about being forgotten. And there was nothing that I could say as one of his friends, not just a fan of his artwork, but one of his friends, to keep him from that other than to say, you know, Ernie, I am going to keep my leg for you. And while I have my leg, I can do impossible things. Reggie knows all about doing impossible things. Born with a serious hearing impairment, he attended the Michigan School for the Deaf and Dumb. The odds that he would someday attend an Ivy League college on an academic scholarship, graduating in just three and a half years, were astronomical. But that's fortunately with great parents and a commitment to reading and the love of reading that I still enjoy today, that did happen. And so when you get to 59 and you're faced with something impossible, you say, hey, you know, I've done impossible things before. Many thought an NFL career was impossible. Reggie was a three-time All-Ivy League linebacker and the league's heavyweight wrestling champion, but he wasn't highly regarded by NFL scouts and considered quitting until he saw his idol, Muhammad Ali, in a Cleveland airport. And you walk up to him and you get an autograph and he tells you to pursue your dreams. The next day, Reggie got his first tattoo to acknowledge the duality of life. I know there is good and everything bad. And I got the yin-yang, because when bad things are happening, I've got to find that good. And so when adversity has always been my companion, I'm going to find the good in that adversity. Cincinnati picked Williams in the third round of the 1976 draft. He made the all-rookie team and spent 14 seasons with the Bengals, leading them to two Super Bowls. 25 years later, he still holds several all-time team records. His success off the field was even more impressive, winning Sports Illustrated Sportsman of the Year Award, the NFL Walter Payton Man of the Year Award, and many others for his humanitarian service. But decades of football came at a steep price that he continues to pay every day. While many have a mantra or slogan that helps when times are tough, Reggie has a Victorian poem. I always believe you have to have something, you know, deep etched into your soul that you will fall back upon in times of diversity. And so for me, it's always been Invictus by William Ernest Henley, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I think whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul, it matters not. How straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Wow. So I can go to war with that. It's a war that for the first time in years, he appears to be winning. And when a journalist, realizing that he might not be headed for amputation, asks what his plans are next. Well, I said, I want to run. He said, where do you want to run? Paul Brown Stadium. The home of the Bengals. When Cincinnati plays the Baltimore Ravens, he'll attempt to run onto the field one more time. There are impossibilities in everyone's life. I don't know what the impossibility is in your life, but you have one. Uh, for me, uh, the quest to run is one of those impossibilities that I still want to make a reality. I want to run. I haven't run in 10 years. I want to experience that. Even though it can be painful, it's also exhilarating. 
Reggie Williams likes to dream the impossible dream. He's done it all his life, and he's doing it again. This time, it's a single symbolic run on an abstract knee that he calls his Picasso, a masterpiece of passion, purpose, and perseverance. What an amazing guy, and amazingly, his perseverance is being tested again, Bill. Just weeks after we did that story, two weeks away from realizing his dream of finally running onto the field at Paul Brown Stadium in Cincinnati, he suffered an aortic dissection. His aorta basically tore. It was shredded, and he was rushed into life-saving open-heart surgery. He's now back home, and he is feeling much better. And he still plans on running. It might not be for a while, but one thing we know about Reggie Williams, he never gives up. You know, folks, men and women who experience great success are as different as any group could be, but there is at least one thing that they all have in common, and that's the ability to clearly see not only their ultimate success, but the path that will ultimately get them there. You're talking about imagining your success. Seeing it in your mind in great detail is an important part of achieving it. Visualization has been proven to have an almost magical power, and here's someone who knows a little bit about that, Growing Boulder's Rowdy Gaines. Hi, I'm Rowdy Gaines, three-time Olympic gold medalist. You've heard the saying, your grasp never exceeds your reach. And that's another way of saying dream big, because success isn't accidental. One of the most valuable lessons I learned as an Olympic athlete is the importance and power of visualization. I'd swim a big race in my mind a hundred times before I actually swam it in the pool. I visualized how I would feel before the race. I imagined a quick reaction to the gun, how I would feel in the water, how I would respond to the pressure of a close finish, and how it would feel to win. And I visualized it all in vivid detail. The mind is very powerful and very mysterious. So plant those seeds of your success by visualizing what you want to accomplish and how you're going to accomplish it. And then your mind will go to work to help make it happen. Coming up next, a true healthcare pioneer. He has saved literally millions of lives worldwide. We'll tell you what he did and how he did it next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter. Delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. You're listening to Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer along with Mark Middleton. And our next guest is a true pioneer who is responsible for saving countless lives. He's the president and founder of the Ralph Lauren Center for Cancer Care and Prevention in New York City. He's the senior advisor to the director of the National Cancer Institute and the chief architect of the American Cancer Society Initiative on Cancer in the Poor. Yeah, and more importantly, he is recognized throughout the world as the father of patient navigation. He founded that concept at the Harlem Hospital Center, where he worked with mostly poor black patients. Now, the purpose of patient navigation, which is now emulated worldwide, is to eliminate barriers to timely cancer screening, diagnosis, treatment, and supportive care, which dramatically improves survival rates. Let's welcome the guy who figured it all out, Dr. Harold Freeman. Hello, Dr. Freeman. How are you doing? Yeah, fine. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. You know, so much ground to travel here. Let's go back very quickly to the Harlem Cancer Center. You arrived in 1967. What did you find in terms of the patients there and their survival rates compared to patients just a few miles away in Manhattan? Uh, it was devastating. Uh, first of all, I had come there as a young idealistic surgeon, well-trained, and faced a population of women, 
particularly with breast cancer, were coming in very late. Uh, some of them had ulcerated masses of the breast on the first visit. And I, I ultimately studied the population of women with breast cancer, uh, and we found that there was only a 39% five-year survival rate of black poor women in Harlem with breast cancer when it should have been 75%, a very devastating finding. So what was wrong? What, what was the difference? And that's what I set out to try to understand. That was exactly the question. What, that, that was my question. How could this happen in America uh, where we have the best medical system in the world if you can pay for it? Well, complex. The women tended to be people who would go to the emergency room for any problem they had, like a lump in the breast, typically wait a long time, finally see a doctor who would tell them, essentially, you're in the wrong place. This is the emergency room. Besides, you need to go downtown to get a Medicaid card 100 blocks south, come back and make an appointment. So essentially, the process of being screened and diagnosed was more painful to these women than the painless lump that they had. So the, the issue, they couldn't get in, even to a public hospital early enough. Also, the, the priorities they had were different. They were worried about food, clothing, shelter, and avoidance of crime. Uh, a, a lump in the breast was certainly not at the top of their minds, particularly if you had to go through so much trouble to get it taken care of, and that was the problem. So let's jump ahead and, and touch on a couple of major milestones. In 1986, Dr. Freeman writes a landmark report, Cancer in the Economically Disadvantaged, which for the first time establishes the link between poverty and risk factors in cancer. And then in 1990, Doc, you create the first ever patient navigation program, which is now emulated everywhere. What are you trying to do through patient navigation? Patient navigation uh, is designed to eliminate barriers to timely quality health care. First of all, let me say there's a healthcare continuum uh, that I'll re- briefly describe. People live somewhere. Everybody lives somewhere, uh, and, and you need to get people from where they live into a medical care facility for a certain examination, such as a mammogram. That's a challenge itself. So we navigate people from where they live to the site to get a test. Then the challenge is to, when they have a positive finding, to navigate them to diagnosis, and and sometimes people are lost between finding and diagnosis. So we navigate people through diagnosis. If they have cancer, we navigate them through complex treatment and then to the end of life. So typically, we see a a healthcare continuum, which includes outreach, diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. And we're concerned that we need to navigate people across the entire continuum, including educating them when to come in, assuring that they get the test that they need free of charge if they cannot pay, assuring that they get timely quality care, and giving support to them afterwards. That's what navigation attempts to do. So here we are. You, you're one of the foremost doctors in this country, and you're having to focus on the system of just getting people through instead of just the medicine. Is the healthcare bureaucracy getting any better, or are we in danger of basically treating healthcare more as a commodity than a human service? Well, I've actually concluded that at this point in American history, we've shifted more toward treating people, treating healthcare as a commodity rather than a human service. Also, there's some very good things about the healthcare system, but essentially, if you cannot pay for health care by some method, you probably will not get it in a timely way. So you're absolutely right. The danger is that we've shifted to a health care system where health care is a commodity rather than a human service. And I, I think that's very, very unfortunate. You know, many people out there have had cancer. They know family members or friends who have. And, and folks, I mean, you, everybody has got to get this. If you're educated, if you've got money, if you've got health insurance, navigating through our bureaucracy to get treated at the right time in the right way is nearly impossible. So imagine what happens when these people are poor and uneducated. And this is what Dr. Freeman has done. And, and Doc, Growing Boulder is all about making a difference. And in a very large profound way. That is what you have done with your life. Is there a takeaway? Is there a moral to your story that you can share with the rest of us about life in general and our place in this planet? Well, 
Yes, there, there, there's a point that I would like to make. Uh, I, I think that we need to be concerned uh, with the point that there's certain things that our country should provide to its population that is not related to cost. For example, I believe that people should be educated all the way through college, even if they cannot pay. And surely people should have a way to get treated if they have a disease. Uh, we've shifted more toward financial considerations, and I, I would like to see a country that, that takes care of its people at least in two ways. Provide education to all people, irrespective of their ability to pay. Provide health care to people so that people won't die uh, because they are poor. Folks, this is Dr. Harold Freeman, a man responsible for saving lives worldwide, a guy who once said, should poverty be an offense that is punishable by death? A question we all have to ask ourselves and figure out how we should answer that. If you'd like to learn more about his work, just visit the H.P. Freeman Patient Navigation Institute. That's at hpfreemanpni.org. Coming up, she admired the world's greatest older athletes but wasn't able to compete with them, so what did she do? She reinvented herself as a photographer and discovered her life's great passion. That's next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. This is Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer along with Mark Middleton. And our next guest is inspiring on so many levels. She proves that it's never too late to reinvent yourself and never too late to discover a new passion. Now, she's got degrees in geography, special education, and visual culture. She's taught at all levels, including language skills to preschool deaf children and visual theory to university students. Yeah, yeah, she really is amazing. Her doctoral was on the work of visual artists who arrived in Europe as refugees and asylum seekers. She has developed a palliative care training program for hospice. She's a grandmother, a practicing Zen Buddhist, and one heck of a photographer who specializes in photographing competitive athletes who are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. This is one person. This is one person, yeah. Yeah, and you know what? I don't think she's done yet. Uh, It's the photography that caught our attention. So let's start there as we welcome from her home in Bristol, Great Britain, I believe, Alex Rodas. Hello, Alex. How are you? Hi, I'm really well. It's amazing to talk to you both. Well, we're thrilled to talk to you. And, and, and just so I don't screw it up any more than I already have, is your last name Rodas? Yes, it is. Alex Rodas. You're Rodis. not screwing it up. All right, perfect. Let's talk about photography because, again, that's how we learned of you. Tell us yes. how and when you got into it. I started about four years ago, and um, it was a combination of factors. It was partly because I was getting older myself, sort of aware of the fact that I was retiring, if I can put it in inverted commas, from my university work at the age of 60, or 61, and um, partly also because I'm fairly sporty, always have been, and um, play competitive tennis. And and because my background was in visual culture, images, I started looking out to see what images there were out there in the media of um, older athletes, older sportsmen and women. And I expected that I was going to find some and that I would be able to critique them. But actually, to my astonishment, I found none or hardly any. And it seemed like this great gaping hole. Um, and at the same time, of course, I was aware that the kind of images that are out there of people of my age and older, they're um, predominantly depressing, as I think you people at Growing Boulder are only too aware and are seeking to provide an alternative narrative yourselves. Um, so I just thought, wow, um, here's an opportunity, here's a black hole, and I kind of like learning new things. So I thought maybe I'd, I'd try and fill that gap Alex, um, and take some photos. You must have been stunned when you started to realize how great a subjects they are to photograph. And in addition yeah. to that, 
we have found that almost to a T, every one of them is an inspirational person. And I bet some of that rubbed off on you, too. What would you say that you've learned from shooting photographs of these incredible athletes? Honestly, I, I, I don't know where to begin on what I've learned. And what you said is spot on. Every single one of these competitors, every single person that I meet when I'm lucky enough to be out there photographing these meets, these events, they've all got an amazing story. They're all incredible people. So what have I learned? Gosh, um, I guess never give up. Um, it's never too late. There are athletes out there who are breaking world records and they didn't start till their 70s. Um, people are always, in fact, um, there was a new boy on the block, a new kid on the block at the British National Championships in August of this year, who was 95. He was 95. He'd, he'd been a bodybuilder and um, a rower in his youth. By, by youth, I'm guessing he means, I don't know, his <laughs> 60s or 70s. And he decided to take up track and field. So he was in his first event, age 95. And that's the guy's name is... Euster, 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 yes, yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know what? We're big fans of what you've done, and I and I am sorry that we only found out about you recently because we we've talked and interviewed dozens of uh, of world champion masters athletes over the years, and and, and yes. what we found, and I know you found the same thing. Many of them surprisingly didn't even start competing until later in life, and and most were as drawn to the social benefits, the social engagement, yes. as they were to the actual competition. Yes. I think one of the advantages of starting later in life is that they don't have the injuries. You know, people who have actually hammered themselves throughout their lives from their teens right the way through relentlessly often have injuries. But if you come in sort of late in life, maybe your knees are still there and, you know, you, you, you sort of have that advantage. Um, yeah. So, so, so Alex, you, you get it and we get it. What kind of reception have you gotten from the general public? Do they see this too, or do they still look at an old person as well? That's somebody that can't possibly be interesting. <laughs> um, the reception I'm getting is astonishment. When people see my pictures, what, what they tend to say is, I never knew about this. How come I never knew? So there's massive interest. And they, then they say, why, is it, why isn't it on TV? I'd like to go to one of these events. And it seems to me that this is, this is an event, this is a um, master's athletics, a master's sport in general. It's something waiting to happen because people are just, they're, they're, they're hungry, they're thirsty for positive stories about our increased longevity. And we endlessly hear about how we're going to live longer, but it's all doom and gloom. And here's an alternative narrative of, 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 of joy and inspiration. So actually... Um, no, I haven't had people saying, um, I've had a couple of people saying to me, you ought to slow down, but, which is true. <laughs> <laughs> but um, in general, they, they're just thrilled, absolutely thrilled and inspired. Yep. Um, and I think particularly, well, often people in their 50s who, who maybe are caring for older parents, people who, you know, their parents might be declining and they think, oh my goodness, not only am I worn out with, and, and depressed by what's happening to my parents but this is probably what's going to happen to me and then they see that that it's not inevitable and i guess that's that's what i'm trying to put over i'm not by any means trying to suggest everybody wants to be a world champion athlete or sports person because that would be crazy but that it's possible you know it's changing people's views of what's possible Man, we we love to to hear you say can, this. Can we hire her yeah. like right now? <laughs> I wish we could. I don't think we could afford her. You know, we definitely have found a kindred spirit because yeah. you are reading straight from the Growing Boulder playbook. We absolutely love that. And you're right. We've been trying to change the narrative as well. And people ask us, and I know they ask you as well, where do you find these people? And the answer is they are freaking everywhere. It's just I was that going to say that they're everywhere. Nobody wants to expose them to people. And you're right. Uh, Alex, we get people in their 20s and 30s who follow what we do all the time because we're showing them, as you are, that, that life is not what they have been led to be believe. What the mainstream exactly. media, our culture has taught them is absolutely false. Exactly, exactly. I found exactly that. And that youngsters come to my exhibitions, as you say, in their 20s and 30s, and they're excited. Not only do they think about their grandparents, they think about themselves. It changes your whole vision of, of the trajectory, the aging trajectory, I guess. 
You know, we could go on and on and on. We're going to have to get you back. I want to mention uh, before we run out of time that uh, she's published her first book. It's called Growing Old Competitively. And if you've not seen the photos of Alex Rotas, you really should do that. You can look at them at her website, which is alexrotasphotography.com. And aside from the photographs themselves, which stand on their own as works of art. This is one very interesting and engaging woman who has never been afraid to try new things and to get out there and take chances. Alex, we're going to keep our eyes on you, and we'd love to figure out a way to collaborate in in, in the months and years ahead if we can. That's fantastic. I'd love it, too. And keep up the good work. It's so important what you're doing. And how interesting, Mark, that the same story is happening on both sides of the ocean. It's just a phenomenon of humanity and our times that this age revolution is for real. You know, I think the U.K., you know, has it down better than we do, you know, uh, in terms of understanding and appreciating this age wave and what is possible. I think the U.S. is way behind and we need more like Alex Rodas over here. She sure gets it, folks. Check her out. The great Alex Rodas. Coming up, a random act of violence left her a quadriplegic but couldn't keep her from doing what she loved. If you want some inspiration to chase your dreams, that's next on Growing Boulder. Subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts. You're listening to Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton. Devastating story here. I want you to follow this one. Our next guest was a college art student. She was sitting at a stop sign when gunfire broke out across the street. A single bullet passed through the door of her car. It hit her in the neck and the back. And just like that, it left her a quadriplegic, unable to walk. And, you know, Bill, I'm not one to correct you, and I'm not really doing that. It is a devastating thing that happened to her. But ultimately, I think this is an amazingly uh, inspiring story. Well, there's there's a comeback to There this, is a comeback, yeah. yeah. She began a long and painful process, had to relearn how to do everything. And when a therapist taught her how to hold a pencil in her teeth and write... A light went off. She realized she might be able to do the same thing with a paintbrush. And today, 20 years later, Marion Perret is an accomplished painter, not only earning a living, doing what she loves. We should all be so lucky. Her paintings are collected and exhibited nationwide. Let's welcome the amazing Miriam Perret. Hey, Miriam, how are you? Bill. Hi, Mark. I'm good, thanks. You, you know what? I don't want to take you back to where you probably don't want to go, but it's been so long ago and you've been asked this so many times. What was it like that day? Well, you're sitting in a car at an intersection and, and a stray bullet uh, you know, basically changed your life in an instant. Well, you know, nobody expects something like that to happen. Um, you know, at, when, it, when it did happen, it, I didn't even know that I had been shot. Um, I, the, the sounds that the guns make don't sound how they do on TV. I, I really didn't know what had happened to me. It wasn't until I was in the hospital that I had, they even told me that I had been, been shot and paralyzed. And, you know, Miriam, we all have the discussion, especially after the Christopher Reeve thing, is, gee, would you want to mm-hmm. live like that? And, and I can't imagine what you went through and what you were thinking, not about painting, but just merely living. Right. Initially, it's such a life-changing event. Um, you know, physically, everything you've ever known before is is gone, you know, physically. And it's, it's kind of like, I call it the beginning of my new life, because at that point, it was like starting all over again. And And that's why I was so happy ultimately to have painting back in my life because it was one of the only things that was from my former life that I still had and could still continue to do, even if I was doing it in a different way. And that's why I think I held on to it so tightly um, and and practiced and, and, and got as good as I had been with my hands. It was a goal of mine because... It was it was that one thing from my former life that I still had. Yes. 
You know, that's a great point, Miriam. You know, we encourage people all the time to find their passion and make it part of their life because that's what makes life living. I mean, in your case, you know, that really is literal. Uh, You know, thank God you had that passion when this happened because it did, you know, give you reason, give you hope, give you something to, to strive for. Yeah, absolutely. And it really helped me cope. And, you know, being an artistic heart that you can express your feelings and, you know, things that I just wish that everybody had. I wish everybody was an artist because <laughs> it's such a fulfilling um, thing to do and express yourself, especially when you're facing challenges. And and um, I'm just so glad to be able to touch people's life with my art. And when people enjoy seeing my paintings, it just... It just makes me so happy. That's why I do it. And you're not the only one out there doing it either, Miriam. How did you become involved with the mouth and foot painting artists? Well, you know, it's so interesting. I didn't even know when I was starting to learn to paint with my mouth and was a mouth painter. I thought I was the only one doing this weird thing. And I had never really heard of other people doing it. And then I learned I had met somebody at a Abilities Expo who was a member of the mouth and foot painting artists. And they told me about this organization of this whole organization of other artists who were disabled, who were painting with their mouth or their foot. I mean, there's 800 of them internationally. In the United States, there's 66 of which I am now. And when I learned about them, I was like, oh, my goodness, this is so amazing. They're professional artists who do this for a living. And I immediately... Um, turned a portfolio in and and applied to be a member and wasn't accepted and accepted and now I've been a member for 8 years and I've been making a living by having my original paintings reproduced on cards and calendars and 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 such things like that it's it's a great organization and you are a great artist folks we're speaking with Miriam Paré if you haven't seen her artwork and we'll we'll give you this uh uh website again, but it's Miriam Paré, P-A-R-E dot com. You should check out what she does. Uh, it is unbelievable by any standard, and considering that she paints this with her mouth, it, it's astounding. Uh, you know, one of your passions, you know, I, I love this because it's quirky. One of your passions has been James Bond. You painted two portraits yeah. of Pierce Brosnan, one of I him did. as James Bond. He found out about this work. He was so moved by it. Tell us what happened. Yes, Mr. Pierce Brosnan, who is the most gracious gentleman, wonderful person ever, found out that I had done this because I paint portraits of interesting people who I like. And he invited me to his home in Malibu, California, to deliver them to him personally. Isn't that amazing? I still pinch myself like I can't believe it happened. But, you know, I, I went to his home and just hung out. And I don't know if people know this, but Mr. Brosnan is an artist. He paints. And we connected on this artist to artist. It was amazing. We talked about the things that inspire us to paint and, you know, even the the pain and suffering of our lives and how that is incorporated into our art. It was amazing. You know, one thing radio and art have in common, Miriam, is that you don't see disability. You don't see it in your finished products. You don't hear it in your voice at all. Can you tell us about how you've overcome everything? What have you learned about life, and what can we learn from you? Wow, that's a that's a broad question, but it's, oh, you know, when I think about that, I think that the, the lesson that I've learned is to, to, to keep trying, to not give up, and to maybe not care so much about um, what people think and um, preconceived perceptions of disabled people are can be very negative at times. And I think I've been underestimated throughout the years. And I never let that, that get me down. And I just kept trying. And you have to let go of a lot of vanities. And you have to let go of some egos to achieve things. But when you do, you know, you succeed things that maybe other people can't. And I think that's what I would share with people. You know, an amazing, uh, amazing takeaway from Miriam Paré, uh, inspirational words. And, and Miriam proves, Bill, that, you know, art really isn't about some sort of physicality, what you can do with your hands. You know, she proves that, that art is inside. It's in your heart. It's in your soul. Folks, check out her work, Miriam Paré, P-A-R-E dot com. Check her paintings out, buy a painting, support her, support the Mouth and Foot Painters Association, because these people are out there inspiring all of us to continue to live. Thanks, Miriam.
Our takeaway today comes from Brittany Maynard, the 29-year-old death with dignity advocate who fought for the right to die on her own terms. And boy, she ignited a national debate about the right to suicide in the face of terminal illness. Yeah, she was diagnosed with an aggressive and incurable form of brain cancer. And when treatment and surgeries failed to stop the growth of her tumors, she and her husband moved from California to Oregon because, of course, Oregon is one of five states where physician-assisted suicide is legal. Before ending her life, Maynard said this, what is important to you? What do you care about? What matters most? Pursue that. Forget the rest. Seize the day. What a great reminder for all of us that time is limited. Seize that day. Start growing bolder. We'll see you next time. Growing Bolder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, flowing high and mighty traps. Countless fire and flaming road, using ideas as my map. We'll meet on edges soon, said I. Oh